Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Ravlick and thank you for joining me for this podcast. One of the features of this period during which we've had the coronavirus pandemic is the creativity with which some people uh, tell the story of why the pandemic came to be. And there's all sorts of theories, whether it's uh, Bill Gates creating something or whether it's uh, there are issues with the way in which Anthony Fauci has run uh, a national institute in the United States related to uh, related to health. There are all sorts of what we would call conspiracy theories, that is, theories that people uh, have about why it is something has turned out. Typically not an official version, typically something that's been hammered out in the back of somebody's mind, and these days more likely than not spread across Twitter. Um, but we need to explain this to people uh, in, a, in a better way. So I've got an Associate Professor in Cognitive Science from the University of Western Australia joining me today, Ulrich Ecker. Now, Ulrich has been teaching and researching the area for some time and recently published an article with a series of co-authors deconstructing pandemic, um, looking at seven traits of conspiratorial thinking. The old, uh, Ulrich will take us through that and a few other pieces along the way. Ulrich, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for having me. Okay, not a problem. Absolute pleasure. Uh, before we go on to the topic of the day, uh, your title is Associate Professor of Cognitive Science. What exactly does that knowledge area entail? Right, well, cognitive science is sort of a bit of an umbrella term. Um, it encompasses all kinds of uh, approaches to understanding thinking. So this could be uh, cognitive psychology, experimental psychology. This is what I usually do. Uh, we conduct experiments to find out how people uh, think, how they make decisions. Uh, but it can also be building um, mathematical or computational models of the mind to sort of try and mimic uh, human decision-making or even animal cognition. Um, so, yeah, just an umbrella term for um, a variety of approaches to find out more about how we think, the way we think, and, and what kind of biases we have, and so on. How did you get into the area of uh, looking at misinformation um, as part of the work you do uh, in your role? Um, yeah, there's. I, I guess there's uh, part of part of it is that I just sort of stumbled into it. I was always interested in, in human memory, and that's what I sort of did for my PhD, um, and did some clinical work with people where I noticed that people just had a strong inclination to keep believing what they wanted to believe. So I got interested in how people update their memory and how they revise their knowledge. And and, um, and that actually tapped into a lot of older uh, memories. So, for example, um, my mother died when I was quite young of, of uh, cancer. Um, and my grandmother was all about herbal teas and trying to heal cancer with herbal tea. And that just didn't sit right with me as a child and it doesn't sit right with me today so there's a few personal things that kind of made it uh, particularly appealing to me so i just if i see someone arguing something that is objectively not true and can actually cause harm i just i can't be quiet so uh, this was a very good career choice for me so i now can study uh, why people believe in things they shouldn't actually believe in and uh, yeah i think that's that's 
what provides me with my with my motivation i guess you've been you've been blessed in some respects with an enormous amount of material to pick mm. pick off uh, over the past six months with the uh, um, with the with the commentary and debate surrounding COVID nineteen. Before we go into the seven traits that you and colleagues have have put forward in the article, what are the what are the observations that you would make about the way in which the discourse has flowed over the past while? Well, I think the the, the crucial one is that this is just such a, a time of such huge uncertainty and a major threat and um, a threat that has asked a lot of us in terms of, you know, we needed to adapt and change our behaviour and accept uh, restrictions. So it's been a massive challenge. So it's not surprising that that um, people go out there and, and try to look for answers, right? And we're now in, a, in, a, in an environment where we're sort of used to getting answers quickly, right? You can just Google stuff while you're on the phone, right? You can answer questions quickly. We're just used to that now. Um, so in situations like this where there's so much uncertainty and even the experts, you know, they, they, they need to spend some time doing the research and trying to understand what's going on, they can't give... Um, clear answers quickly, and neither can can you know political leaders. They can't give, you know, they struggled initially to to uh, decide what to do and, and what evidence to trust and so on and so forth. So, in that kind of situation where there's huge uncertainty, it's not surprising that that people long for answers. They want uh, you know some certainty around what's going to happen, um, and you know it was pretty obvious that th- these conspiracy theories would pop up because they can offer sort of quick answers, whereas, you know, the the answers that are based in evidence, uh, the answers that are based in, in you know, examination of, of what's actually going on, they just take longer to develop. And you said... Sorry, my dog is going to bark. Uh, well, that's all right. Then that's all right. I'll, I'll take a contribution for any, from anybody, including, uh, including the boss of the house. But if you've got the um, taking your point that you've made that, that people have a gap in knowledge, um, there's a there's a missing link between what they're struggling with and and the cause. Um, is there a compulsion from what you've studied for people to fill the gap with almost anything that seems plausible at that time? Yeah, I think that's true of some people. People differ in in the amount of uncertainty they sort of tolerate willingly. They differ in the amount of ambiguity that they're willing to accept. Um, And some people have a a more, you know, a stronger demand to sort of understand their environment. Um, And and they might be sort of particularly vulnerable to to that kind of thinking. I mean, we're naturally suspicious and, and uh, afraid of things that don't have an obvious explanation. So, you know, in times of confusion, we all want answers. It's not just a subgroup of people. Everyone's like that. Everyone dislikes uncertainty. We just vary a little bit in the extent to which we can tolerate uncertainty. So for some people, so you know, a... they just want answers. Other people are happy to sort of sit back and say, okay, I don't know what's going on. Um, I'll just 
take a step back. I'll, I'll follow the advice and, and we'll just see how it pans out. When we consider what you just said, you've got um, you know, some people, some people might have a, a, a better risk appetite and can wear um, the issues well, um, but other people don't have the same degree of a, uh, appetite for, for risk and they're, they're looking for an explanation. Um, are those people susceptible uh, to some of the characters in various groups that exist online uh, to draw them in with a particular story? Now, there are multiples with COVID-19, as we're both aware. Uh, are they vulnerable to some kind of, shall we say, a, a kind of a radicalisation once they go down a a rabbit hole with one kind of explanation? That that certainly can happen. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's data out there that um, suggests that, you know, at least 50% of people in the US, for example, believe in one or the other conspiracy theory. But that's not to say that everyone, you know, is really engaged with those conspiracy theories. A, it depends a little bit on how you measure it. So sometimes uh, the scales that are given to people are sort of... Um, uh, constructed in a way that makes it very easy for people to agree. So they might have one option saying, uh, you know, here's a conspiracy theory, how much do you believe it? And the scale might say, I don't believe it. And then I might believe it a little bit. I believe it, you know, a little bit more. So then, and then I'll, I'll believe it moderately. I believe it quite strongly. And then I fully believe it. So there's like six, five or six options reflecting various degrees of belief and only one that says, I don't believe it. So sometimes I use those scales and even people who, then indicate that they might consider it possible and they, they you know, might believe it a little bit. They're not quite sure it's not true. Even those people are often counted when they release these statistics saying how many people believe in conspiracy theory X, right? So that's not really a proper way of measuring belief. So not everyone who falls into that category will actually have you know, a substantial belief in that conspiracy theory. Plus, just believing, you know, if, if someone doubts that, I don't know, we really landed on the moon. Well, okay, um, you can you can believe that. It's not going to really cause any harm. It's not going to cause any issues, right? So not everyone who believes in the odd conspiracy theory is being totally irrational or is, is you know, someone who's, who's causing harm. It's only a very small, tiny fragment of the population who really believes in these conspiracy theories. And they tend to believe in multiple conspiracy theories, even if those are contradictory. Um, but yes, there is a chance that some people, you know, slide down a slippery slope and they believe in one a little bit and then they believe in another one and they start digging. And of course, on the internet, um, now that everything, everyone is connected, you can find evidence, quote unquote, um, for anything that you want, pretty much, right? The earth is flat, you know, what, whatever. Like you can find like-minded people, even if it's just a few that will sort of amplify that belief. So there is that risk of radicalization. There is the risk that if you believe in some conspiracy a little bit, that, you know, you start digging and you end up um, fully embracing it and starting maybe to even create your own and spreading them around. And that that does happen. But we do need to keep in mind that we're talking about a, a quite small segment of the population that is just creating um, an extraordinary am amount of noise. 
Um, and the, you mentioned the internet and social media. Um, those are vehicles or if you like mediums mm-hmm. through which these things get amplified. You know, d- d- two decades ago, Twitter and Facebook didn't exist. Yeah. Um, and those, the, the ability of a conspiracy theorist to get past, shall we say, traditional gatekeepers like mainstream media was not there. Now, it can be almost uh, within seconds somebody could publicise elements of a conspiracy theory without any gatekeeper being between the, um, the, the messenger or the, the sender of the message and the recipient if we look at traditional communications theory. Hmm. Um, is there any... Have you noticed anything in your research about how, whether those who deal with, uh, deal with the conspiracy theories turn away from uh, mainstream media and just rely on the narrow cast... Social media? Yeah, look, I think there's there's two two separate um, developments here. One is that many people are turning away from mainstream media, not intentionally, but just as a matter of habit, right? Um, for example, I, I use Twitter professionally, so I tweet about my work. Um, but when I go there to tweet about my work or read you know, what my colleagues are doing, I learn a lot from my colleagues over Twitter. Um, I'm also exposed to the news because I follow some some um, you know news news uh, organizations on Twitter. So I don't actually read the newspaper as much as I used to. I don't watch uh, the TV news as much as I used to because I'm getting my my uh, information elsewhere. So it's just uh, a shift away from the mainstream media, I guess. Even though the the, the news that I receive on Twitter is mainly from the mainstream media because I follow various outlets. Um, but other people, it might be more secondhand news that they're getting or, or less traditional, uh, not so mainstream media organizations. So that's the, the gradual shift that has happened anyway, um, sort of slightly away from mainstream media. Um, but then, yes, of course, if, if you're a conspiratorial thinker or you believe in conspiracy theories, you're not going to get the information that you want from mainstream media because they will typically not uh, really, you know, uh, be an outlet for conspiracy theories. They will try and cover the news as, as best they can. Um, so you're not getting what, what you want, so you're turning elsewhere. So, yes, of course, uh, conspiratorial thinkers will turn away from mainstream media. And, in fact, obviously the mainstream media... Uh, to many of them is the enemy and and they're just out there um, allegedly spreading fake news uh, and they're actually trying to find the truth in in their own uh, perception. One of the interesting things I noticed about the work uh, that you and colleagues have obviously done looking at Plandemic uh, is you've... And for those who don't know, there was a video about 26 minutes long uh, that was put together by a production company that interviewed a lady that was that's a discredited um, uh, immune slash viral researcher by the name of Judy Milkovitz. 
and that video was ripped off social media platforms, but it ended up in my in my Facebook Messenger on multiple occasions, and people asked me to watch it. Uh, I watched it for a couple of minutes and realised what was going on. Um, how long did it take all of you to sort of look through the video and 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 nut out how those elements fit with the the various uh, flags, if you like, for conspiracy theories? Yeah, that didn't take too long actually <laughs> um the you know we've been looking at this for for some time and with um the two two people doing most of the work uh in that article you mentioned um john cook and stephen lewandowski published uh a conspiracy theory handbook um well before the the pandemic video struck so that was just um one sort of thing that we could look at and, and see, if, you know, the uh, those seven traits of conspiratorial thinking that, that we claimed sort of applied to that video as well. So, yeah, there's there's various other pieces that we looked at. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're not difficult to find at the moment. Um, and then we can look <laughs> at the extent to which, uh, you know, people spreading those conspiracy theories uh, show those those seven traits. And they will... You know, do that to to varying degrees, but yeah, they they're pretty. You know, it's it's like a template. They pretty much use the same uh, techniques all the time, which is exactly why we're interested in highlighting those. We're not interested to sort of uh, highlight those traits to make fun of people or, or to discredit them. You know, that's not the main aim. The main aim is to help people understand what kind of misleading argumentation strategies. Uh, those people are using um, to mislead the public and by better understanding what those traits are it means that people can be better prepared when they uh, you know encounter such content down the line into the future right so we call this inoculation uh, sort of a term we obviously borrowed from the uh, from the more medical uh, side of things but the idea is that we make you know we try to provide access to sort of a weakened form of the disinformation of the conspiracy theories to sort of um, tease apart what kind of misleading strategies are being used and why they're flawed uh, so people can identify them down the track and be better protected. Um, obviously, you know, it's, it's really important to have good media literacy at the moment to sort of really be sceptical and question, okay, what am I being told here? What's the agenda? Uh, are there, is there evidence that this is just trying uh, to mislead me or, or spread a conspiracy theory? Yeah, it's an interesting group of seven categories. We can go through them one by one just to, to clarify to people what they are. The first one you've got on the list where you look at pandemic is contradictory beliefs. So that, that to me suggests that there's no internal consistency with what a conspiracy theorist might think. Am I correct in asserting that? Exactly. So conspiracy theorists will use whatever evidence um, they think will serve their purpose and whether that evidence is internally consistent is uh, doesn't matter, right? So they are happy to use contradictory arguments if the arguments serve their cause. So the famous example that, that uh, we use is that, you know, you can believe that Princess Diana was murdered 
or you can believe that she faked her own death, but those two things can't be true at the same time, right? And we see those things over and over again where, um, uh, you know, people have uh, put arguments forward that are mutually incompatible. So that's one one telltale sign of, of you know, someone trying to, to push their opinion on you without actual good evidence. Yeah, uh, and you... This the conversation, your piece, and I'll, I'll we'll mention it again at the end of the podcast for people to go and look at it. About, do a quick Google search and look at it. Um, you got the notion of overriding suspicion, which, um, which to me suggests, uh, it, well, it's a, it's actually a more polite term for paranoia, is it not? <laughs> well, I wouldn't call it paranoia. I would I would say like sometimes conspiracy theorists or people defending them will say, well, aren't they just being skeptical, right? Um, and I say, no, that's not what they're doing because a true skeptic will look at evidence skeptically, right? They will uh, look for additional evidence from elsewhere to maybe, you know, uh, see whether what they have in front of them uh, stacks up. And then they will make their own decision. They will look at it and say, okay, so this evidence is very weak, so I'm not going to believe it. Or they will say, oh, this is surprising. I didn't know that, you know, that this was true, but the evidence seems quite strong, so I'm now going to change my mind. Right? So a true skeptic will objecti or as objectively as, as possible uh, evaluate the evidence and then be open to changing their mind if they perceive the evidence to be persuasive. Um, a conspiracy theorist will be hyper-skeptical, almost nihilistically skeptical, towards anything to do with the official account or, you know, the, the evidence that is put forward uh, to support that account, while at the same time being extremely gullible towards anything that fits their narrative, right? So it's not true skepticism. It's what we call motivated reasoning. They're motivated to come to a particular conclusion, and hence they cherry-pick the evidence um, as they like it. So they're sort of pretending to be skeptical, but all they are is they have overriding an overriding sense of suspicion towards anything to do with the official account, while at the same time being very gullible for anything that suits their purposes. And it then leads quite nicely, or segues quite nicely into into number three, being nefarious intent. Tell me a bit about that. Right. So basically, it means that. Uh, the conspiracy theorist will always assume that the motivations behind the presumed conspiracy are nefarious. People are out there to, uh, you know, take over the world or kill a certain segment of the population or whatever it might be, right? It's always ill intent. Um, and now, and that's actually an interesting point because, of course, there are real conspiracies sometimes, right? Uh, we know that, you know, there's... there's uh, uh, First thing that comes to mind now is sort of the Watergate scandal because I just watched Vice, the movie with uh, Christian Bale. Uh, great movie, by the way. Um, where you know there is a real conspiracy by certain people to achieve a certain aim, but that's usually uncovered through you know investigative journalism or you know whistleblowers, things like that. Um, but sometimes there are also real conspiracies that have. I mean, Watergate obviously had a bit of a malicious intent, but there are conspiracy theories. Oh, sorry, conspiracies, real conspiracies that, you know, actually have a good purpose. 
like if a, a group of people conspire to kill or, or you know a, a dictator or take down a dictator whatever it might be so there, there can be conspiracies real conspiracies where there is benign intent but for conspiracy theorists those conspiracy theories that are put forward there will always be nefarious intent assumed you said well is there a heightened in this context is there a a heightened distrust of authority across the board? I don't think it's across the board. So if you look at um, surveys in Australia, for example, there's still extremely high trust in um, medical professionals, uh, in health workers, in scientists. Um, there's, mm. there's very high levels of trust. Of course, there's other, uh, you know, <laughs> people where trust levels are lower, and that is quite unfortunate, especially, uh, you know, with regards to political leaders and other elites, where, you know, there are good reasons to be sceptical of of many people in those areas. There's good reasons to be, um, you know, a bit distrusting. There's just too much corruption and nepotism and things going on where people go, you know, we've had so many royal commissions into, you know, God knows what. But of course, people are not trusting Right, because they have good reasons not to not to trust, and that's in this particular circumstance of the pandemic. That's in, you know particularly damaging because what we would need now is leaders whom are trusted, who can communicate transparently and honestly with the public, um, and that would would prevent a whole lot of damage. Right, so you can't blame people for not trusting politicians because, frankly, many politicians have not earned the trust. And it takes a long time to build trust. You know, it's it's quickly, it's quickly destroyed. And unfortunately, the way uh, politics have played out uh, in this country and in in many other countries over the last decades, trust has been eroded. But again, um, people who really distrust the media, who really distrust uh, science as as a whole, they're actually sort of relatively rare. I think trust levels there are still reasonably high in science and scientists in health professionals in some mainstream media outlets like you know the abc for example have, have reasonably high trust levels i understand if conservative some conservative people think the abc is maybe a bit left-leaning there's also left-leaning people who think the abc sometimes provides too much sort of false balance when they cover certain things um and i'm the first person to say that i you know some of the mainstream news are just not you know great I would I would say on TV and so on, um, so yeah, it's not perfect. I I think we should really, as a country, invest more in a strong and independent media, and it doesn't matter if they're you know left leaning or, or right leaning, as long as they're really trying to um, provide the news in a, in a fact based, evidence based manner. Um, and I think you know many Australians still believe, uh, sorry, still trust those institutions. But unfortunately, you know, as I said earlier, um, in other in other areas such as you know trust in politicians and so on, trust has been has been eroded quite broadly and for good reason. So that's a bit unfortunate. That that, that I guess to my point in looking at distrust in institutions is in some ways um, uh, test whether distrust in institutions. Uh, leads people to 
fall into the trap of believing a conspiracy theory more. Oh yeah, of course. Like if you if you distrust uh, what politicians are telling you, if you distrust what scientists are telling you, and unfortunately, again, there's fraudulent scientists, right, who try and 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 get a big publication out prematurely, or and if that damages trust in science, and it's terrible, right? But by and large, scientists are trying to do the right thing and trying to get evidence-based recommendations. Um, but yeah, if you don't trust politicians, if you don't trust what, what scientists are te- telling you, if you don't trust what uh, the media are telling you, well, of course, where is that going to leave you, right? If you don't trust any of those, then you go online, you use, you you know seek alternative viewpoints and you put your trust in them. And that's unfortunate because... Um, you know, I think at the current moment, uh, you know, the scientists and, and uh, medical officers and, uh, dare I say it, many politicians actually have our best interests at heart. You know, I disagree with a lot of things that politicians say and the way uh, things are being done here and there. Um, but still, by and large, I, I have a sense that, you know, there's, there's some people out there who really actually only have our best interests at heart. And not all of them are just out there to, um, you know, just look after themselves. But again, you know, mm-hmm. trust trust in some politicians has eroded for good reasons, and that's I really unfortunate. It's interesting having covered that off. You've gotten the, the fourth the fourth bullet point in the seven um, drops us into a notion of conviction that something is wrong, even though there's no evidence something is wrong. There's um, uh, it, it, something doesn't seem right. Uh, tell me a bit about that particular. Yeah. Tell me a bit about that. So point. again, if we compare a true skeptic with a conspiracy theorist, uh, uh, you know, someone who's really skeptical about the evidence they receive, they will see evidence and they will look at more evidence and they will come to a conclusion that uh, this all points in one direction, so something must be wrong. I've got to do some further investigation. Um, whereas a conspiracy theorist will sort of almost start with a premise that something must be wrong. They have a hunch um, something must be wrong, and then they start gathering evidence to support that conclusion, right? Uh, and then the way they gather that evidence is, of course, through um, you know, cherry-picking um, or other, other tactics to sort of uh, only pay attention to those things that confirm their notion that something is wrong. And even if you change their mind on, on one particular uh, piece of evidence um they might change their mind on that and agree and say okay i can't i can no longer claim this but i can still hold on to the uh, overarching notion that something must be wrong and i'll just find another piece of evidence that uh suits my suits my argument now there's a number number five of seven it feels like a bit of a billboard uh top 40 countdown but uh Number five is fascinating to me. It's the one concerning prosecuted, well, persecuted victims. Uh, is there always some kind of persecuted victim in a conspiracy theory? Probably not always. Um, yeah, there, there's certainly some out there where that's maybe not, uh, you know, one of the primary traits. But you do often get a sense when you read into these conspiracy theories that. Uh, the theorists behind those sort of present themselves or perceive themselves as victims of some sort of organized persecution. So, um, 
you know, the government is after us. They don't want us to do this or say that or whatever. They're actively, you know, persecuting us. Um, and at the same time, they often present themselves or see themselves as sort of, you know, the, the, the brave antagonists who are sort of taking on the, the, the evil-minded conspirators, right? Um, yeah, so it's basically uh, often a self-perception of simultaneously being a victim and a hero, so to speak, right? But yeah, again, that doesn't apply to all conspiracy theories, but, um, you know, as soon as they start talking about, okay, Bill Gates is trying to um, get these microchips into us so he can at some point somehow uh, control us or kill us or, or whatever, right? There's this <laughs> idea of there's this this really mighty person who uh, has the, the capability to control us all and, 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 and come after us and we need to stand up otherwise we might get killed because they're believing in, in you know, decimating the population. So there is that flavor of, you know, uh, we're being, we're the persecuted victims here. Um, but it's not omnipresent. It's not in each and every conspiracy theory. It's just sort of a general uh, theme that runs across quite a few of them. Now, there's something, before we get on to the last two, there's something that I've noticed in the discussion about COVID and COVID measures that possibly also plays into some of the rhetoric of conspiracy. Um, one of the things we, certainly in Melbourne, uh, we now have, there are those who call uh, the, the, this thing we've got uh, between 8pm and 5am a, a, a curfew. Mm -hmm. And other people call it house arrest. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> is there a... In terms of language and amplification and casting a negative um, on on some of this, um, it, there's a lot of that in some of the conspiracy theories too, isn't there? Yeah, it's this general notion of, you know, they're coming and they're controlling us. They're coming after us to, um, yeah, not necessarily punish us, but to control us and restrict our freedoms, right? Um, so that's that that sense of persecution, yeah. where of course, you know, the leaders really couldn't care less about what you do at night. Uh, it's not about controlling you or restricting any kind of freedom. I mean, people are now construing wearing a mask as as you know a restriction of their freedom. I mean, that's you know that that goes into territory where you can just kind of shake your head and go like, uh, I think you've never experienced actual restriction of your freedom, right? Because that's not Wearing a mask is not that. Um, yeah, so it's the sense of are they now controlling our lives? They're taking over. Where you know, in actual fact, all it is is a measure designed to help you know prevent infection. And it's not about just um, you know preventing infection for yourself. It's also about if you get infected, who else are you going to pass it on to? You know, we we chatted about this just early, uh, earlier when you, when you first called me. Um, you know, just because a young person is not going to die, it doesn't mean it doesn't matter that they get the virus because they could pass it on to someone who's more vulnerable. Um, and that might end up, you know, you, you never know. A person going, you know, the person going into Bunnings without the mask, uh, great, you know, they argue that there's a restriction on, on their freedom and, and so on. But really it's not... Um, about whether or whether or not you're going to get it it's about if you go out and you you know don't follow the the regulations 
and you might have the, the virus without you knowing, who else are you going to pass it on to? Even if you're safe, if you're young, if you're fit and healthy, even if you don't get many symptoms or a mild case, um, even though those mild cases sound pretty horrific by what I'm, I'm hearing from those who, who, who had them. Um, it's about who else are you going to pass it on? Maybe not even directly. You're part of a chain and you know you might not pass it on you might pass it on to a person who'll be fine who's going to pass it on to another person who's also going to be fine but they might pass it on to someone who then dies and that whole chain could have been stopped by you just putting on a mask i don't think that's too much to ask right so um yeah it's that yeah. sense of no one can take control of me but guess what right there's regulations in place all over the the, the place um that restrict your so-called freedoms right you get into a car you wear a seatbelt. It's not trying to restrict your your movement in the car. It's trying to prevent injury, right? Trying to prevent death, and very successfully so, which eventually ends up in a public health cost if there's lots of injuries and lots of deaths, right? We don't want that, so we regulate it to wear seatbelts. And of course, they're, they're little, you know, restricting your movement in the car a little bit, but hey, that's a very, very tiny price to pay, right, for the benefits that, that it means for, for the common good. And the same is true of the masks. Yeah, it, but you've just spoken about you know, so the notion of evidence, right? Mm. You've said that there are things that, that there are things that exist um, that have, because of their introduction, stopped people from you know, dying prematurely. Mm-hmm. But number six in this particular list of things conspiracy theorists do quite well is that they're immune to evidence as opposed to being immune to a virus. Um, can you explain explain that to the listeners? Yeah, I think that's possibly the, the most important or the most obvious trait of conspiratorial thinking is that those conspiracy theories are inherently self-sealing. You cannot provide any evidence that will counter it because any evidence will be reinterpreted, right? Um, so if you come and say, well, you know, there, there's, um, for example, there's quite a, a big number of COVID deaths in, in Sweden, yet Sweden does have, doesn't have a 5G network, right? So that would be, on my eyes at least, or objectively, a pretty strong piece of evidence that 5G cannot cause the the virus, right? Or the, the disease COVID. Um, yeah. But, you know, a conspiracy theorist would just turn that against you and say, well, that's what they're telling you, right? They, they, they'll still have mobile phones in Sweden, and you would have to say, yes, of course. And they would say, well, you know, they just secretly snuck in the 5G into Sweden without anyone knowing or whatever, right? They'll make something up. So whatever evidence you present will be turned around and eventually, if you you know continue to argue that no, that can't be true, right? There's documented evidence that Sweden does, you know, not have a five G network. Then, if they they can't make any headway against your argument, they will uh, you know go against the person and will just then say, well, you're obviously part of the the sheeple, you know, you're part of the the conspiracy yourself in a in a manner because you just yeah, 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 um, you're, you're re- a sheep, which is the classic. Yeah. yeah, it's a classic. There's somebody that's been putting pictures of sheep, <laughs> of a sheep, um, in response to some of the posts on Facebook that I've seen. And 
it, it is really interesting to see what you've literally said just now, um, replicated in you know the social media, if we could call it propaganda, which is what it is, mm. um, uh, by somebody putting people down to say that they're sheep because yeah. they're following an official version. Yeah, not I mean, not having any regard. Yeah, 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 not having any regard for the fact that um, people are um, probably uh, following the same version of events. Yeah. And there's two facets in that, right? One is that an additional reason why people join these conspiracy theory circles is that it gives them a sense of community, right? They, you know, then with like-minded people, they can um, use social media posts or, you know, stickers on their car or whatever to uh, communicate to the community that, you know, they're part of this, this uh, other group that, uh, you know, pretends to have to have all the the answers so it gives them this this sort of sense of community which everyone's lacking at the moment especially if you're in lockdown right we, we we've lost a lot of that those community connections so and and a lot of a lot of people do feel marginalized in today's society um, and this gives them a sense of community right so that's one aspect but the, the second aspect is as you said uh, putting other people down making my I'm part of the enlightened community, right? I'm part of the better community and everyone else is just a sheep, right? So it's it's this, uh, I'm better than you. And that serves to, to bolster people's, um, you know, view of their self, their, their, their self-esteem. Their, uh, so that's another psychological function of, of that um, to sort of demonstrate to others, I'm better than you and I'm, I'm the enlightened group. But also, we must not forget that there's a lot of disinformation out there, and it's not just created by, you know, the 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 guy in 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 his basement or his bedroom with a tinfoil hat just making stuff up. Some of this content is really created and designed by malicious actors who really want to go out there and and sow division, right? And they're achieving that quite quite well. Um, I read an article the other day about um, interference of uh, Russian social media accounts in the US, not about an election or anything, but they're out there spreading anti-vax information in the US. And now you go, what kind of interest would a Russian agency have to spread anti-vax information in the US? Well, where's the immediate benefit there? Where's the, where's the allure? Where's the motivation? Right? But I believe the motivation is that a lot of that disinformation that is being spread out and amplified by social media is to sow division. And I think Russia has a general interest in bringing down uh, or weakening all Western democracies. And that's one way to do that. The more division you sow, um, the more people turn against each other, you get strong polarization. And the more we end up in a situation as we're seeing now in the US, which arguably is not, you know, the, the, this sort of strong version of, of a, a democratic society that, that most of us sort of aspire towards. So there's that element, right? Uh, and again, look, um, sorry, I lost my chain of thought there, but <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's, a, uh, it's also the final one that we're looking at is reinterpreting randomness. Uh, and it's quite interesting, you in the article, you and your colleagues talk about it being a conspiracy theorists 
being able to come up with some sort of interpretation of a a pattern that gives this thing life. Hmm. Um, how does that work? Well, okay, people differ in their um, in their inclination to see meaning in random events, and again, humans have evolved to find patterns. Right, we're very good pattern detectors, um, but some people more than others really see patterns where there are none, and they see meaning in random, random patterns and random events. Um, and for many people, having a big event like this pandemic, it kind of feels like it also needs a big explanation. They're just not satisfied with, well, it just happened. We're not really quite sure how, um, right? Or, you know, we know a little bit, but we don't know everything. Uh, they, they kind of, that doesn't sit comfortably with them, right? If there's a big event, it must have a big explanation. And they will therefore reinterpret small random events as fitting their narrative, right? Um, yeah, so tiny details can be reinterpreted. Um, one, one example that comes to mind is that after the 9-11 attacks, there were still some intact windows at the Pentagon, right? So in photos, they, they saw those, uh, those intact windows and said, well, that's proof that there was, you know, that was sort of an inside job or it didn't really happen or whatever their conspiracy theory might be, right? So they take some tiny detail and they reinterpret it to support their their preferred version of the of the narrative. In, uh, those seven points in the article, the seven, uh, I guess, red flags, if I can call it that, for, for what conspiracy theories do, uh, fascinating. Uh, you're someone who's been in, in the literature deeply. You've looked at the research. You're looking at the issues. What are, In summing up all of what we've spoken about, what, what are the things that people out there uh, should keep in mind at the current time with all of the information they're seeing about COVID-19 particularly? Yeah, let me... Let me preface that with just saying that it is genuinely difficult at this time to sort of navigate and make sense of what is really a complex information landscape. Now, that was true already before COVID. Uh, it's become even yep. more true now. It's just very difficult to really piece together any, you know, the evidence that is out there and to come to a conclusion. And a lot of that is because many things are just not quite known yet, right? We don't know exactly how effective masks uh if they're homemade and you know how many layers they have and like you can you can tell they make a little bit of a difference and the numbers in europe where there's been been um you know a, a lot of mask wearing recently and also in, in asia uh, the modeling shows that the masks did have a big effect right but it's not you can't be 100 percent certain um how much protection they give right it might be you know 60% or 30% or 70% or 10%. We don't really know exactly how much protection they offer. Uh, all we know is that all the evidence suggests that they do make a difference, right? And therefore, it has been recommended to use them outdoors in, in, in at least some parts of the country now, right? But it's difficult to come to, to that conclusion because there's a lot of conflicting evidence and we're really just working it out, right? And that's a slow process that requires some research. So just wanted to preface that with, you know, it is genuinely difficult. But at the same time, there's a lot of um, 
little pointers that you can look out for, right? You can look out for those seven traits of conspiratorial thinking. So if someone um, is is out there and, and seems to be reinterpreting uh, minute details about about something, then right, that's maybe a first sign that maybe what this person is telling me is is not grounded in in good evidence. Um, so you can you, you can look out for those seven seven traits of conspiratorial thinking. Uh, you can also look out for other other things, right? Um, what's the source of this information? Uh, what evidence are they providing? Um, how trustworthy is this source? Might they have a hidden agenda? Right? Look at who's 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 spreading this, right? Who do they work for? What what's what kind of outlet is this? What is their what is their uh, purpose? Uh, and unless I'm sure that something is actually genuine and, and true and, and uh, at least tries to to sort of strike a balanced picture, should I really be sharing it, right? Because you might be, you know, causing some harm by sharing things that are that are false. So just being a little bit skeptical and just take taking that, you know, ten seconds to think before acting and, and sharing something or just skimming the headline and, and, and liking it and or believing it. Um, just taking a little bit of time to sort of, you know, get the get the brain juices flowing and say, okay, hang on a second, right? Is that actually is this really true? Let me just Google it and see if I can find some other evidence from a different source that confirms that. What do other people say about this? What what exactly is the source? Where is this stuff coming from? Um, you know, uh, even things like reverse Im uh, image searches. There's a lot of images being used that are taken. Um, for example, recently through uh, recently in the U.S., there were quite a few images where people said, "Oh, look, the the Black Lives Matter protesters are now um, vandalizing this or that." And then when you when you looked at the image and did a reverse image search, you found that that image was actually two years old and from a different country or different protest or whatever. Right. So all these tricks are being used, um, and therefore it's important to just stop and think and be a little bit skeptical about what is presented to you. And also to be mindful of um, how the information that we receive through our social media feeds, how that is actually controlled by the algorithms of the social media platforms, which no one knows how they work. All we know is that they work with one and only one uh, goal, which is to maximize engagement and hence advertising profit. That is the only thing that drives those algorithms, right? They're not designed to give you the truth or they're not designed to give you the best evidence, right? They're designed to keep you engaging with the content as long as possible, as widely as possible, so advertising revenue of those companies can be maximized. Um, and that's just important to keep in mind, right? That the things that are fed to you through your social media are not a reflection of the actual state of the world. And look, a lot of people have, a, have, have some sense of that but I also in, in conversations with many people that I have I notice that it, it doesn't always really sink in or the extent of it doesn't really uh, sink in everyone knows that you know if you google uh, you want to buy a pair if where you can buy a new pair of shoes that you know two seconds later you'll get an ad on Facebook with with new shoes right everyone knows that they're using these data yeah. to to and people might think well that's actually quite useful and I agree that can be quite useful and it's pretty obvious. So, you know, that's not terrible. It's not, it's just clever marketing and that's fine. 
right? We still live live in a sort of free market society, and that's absolutely fine. But uh, I think people underestimate the extent to which um, the algorithms determine what you actually see online. And and actually, as sort of a conservative person who's worried about their freedom, that's what would make me crazy that someone is actually controlling the information that I see and trying to subtly and implicitly change my beliefs and my behaviors, right? That's where I think if you're worried about freedom, that's what you should be worried about in, in, in my opinion. So I think that's something that uh, people underestimate. Did you know, for example, that if you type a comment into Facebook without posting it, Facebook still gets that comment and it's part of their databases? I didn't know that. I'm, I, you know, there's these things that we're just not aware of, um, but we should be aware of in, in you know, to, to better navigate this this complex information landscape it's interesting and there's a lot of things for people to consider Ulrich. Well, we've gone through a fair, fair, fairly substantial amount of material in the time we've, we've spent together uh, for those uh, individuals that want to have a look at the article i've been referring to throughout it's an article called deconstructing deconstructing pandemic it's uh, Seven Traits of Conspiratorial Thinking. It was originally published on the Conversation website, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, um, the Conversation has uh, an open an open uh, access, or they, they share their, their things around, so it's been published in a few places. Um, but yeah, yeah uh, originally on the, on the Conversation. Yeah, that's, that's the piece Ulrich and I have been talking about. I recommend it highly uh, for those people who want to uh, have a look at it. There's also a video on YouTube uh, where the seven um, signs of conspiracy theorists, I guess getting a little out of control, uh, is available for those of you that want to have a look. Well, Rick, thank you so much for spending your time with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk talking with you. Pleasure is all mine, Tommy. <laughs> thank you, and hopefully we can do so again. And for those of you listening, stay safe, look after each other, and we'll be back with another podcast reasonably soon.